Baseball is back. The second half got underway last night, and being that I write for Sports Talk Florida, I wanted to have a discussion about the upstart Tampa Bay Rays. To that end, I spoke with our Rays reporter Steve Kinsella about the surprising first half, why the Rays are equipped to make this run last all season, how far the organization has come in 10 years, and where it has room to grow moving forward after its 20th season this year. We recorded this on Friday afternoon, so it doesn't talk about Jacob Faria's great start and the Rays' win last night to move into second place outright, but we will be talking about the Rays. I'm Tim Williams. Welcome to the Pickup Game. The Major League Baseball second half gets underway tonight, Friday night, and the Tampa Bay Rays will be in Anaheim, or maybe you call it Los Anaheim, playing the Angels. The Rays are off to a surprising first half at 47-43. and 43. They're tied with the Yankees for second place in the AL East. And joining me this week is Sports Talk Florida's Rays reporter, Steve Kinsella. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, no problem. Glad to be here. The Rays' fantastic start has been nothing short of remarkable for the Rays. They have a great offense, and I think this... Would you agree with me that this is the greatest offense the Rays have ever put out there? It's close to the 2010 team that I think was second in the American League or third in the American League in scoring. That team was really loaded with a lot of bats. Uh, as far as the power of this team, uh, they have it all. You know, they do, they do have the most power uh, probably of any Rays team, including last year's, but they still are missing that uh, overall dynamic punch that guys like B.J. Upton and Carl Crawford uh, used to give them on the bases and with triples and doubles and and that kind of disruptive force, but uh, it's very close to <clears throat> very close to those teams. And by the end of the year, maybe if they add a few more pieces to the offense that are more like what I just mentioned, it could be something really special. They start the second half on a bit of a West Coast swing. Like I said, they're in against the Angels this weekend. They're going to be in Oakland at the beginning of next week. Then they're going to come home to play Texas and Baltimore. So a pretty favorable start to the second half for the Rays in terms of scheduling. Yeah, uh, I don't buy too much into the uh, looking at a schedule and saying favorable or unfavorable. I mean, maybe that's because the Rays went, you know, the Kansas City Royals came into Tropicana Field as a wounded duck with the worst road record in baseball and won three out of four or they went to Pittsburgh who was struggling and they lost two out of three. Um, so, you know, the, I always look at, you know, every series presents its own obstacles and uh, the angels are 19 and 20, I believe over the last 39 games, they get Mike Trout back. There's going to be a little bit of energy this weekend. So we'll see, you know, there's not a really big gap in talent between the uh, um, any, any team in the American league. And we'll see how it goes this weekend, starting tonight with uh, Jacob free on the mound for the race. That's a good point with the Angels. They're going to be – this is the best Angels team that Mike Trout's ever played on by a considerable margin. They're – because of how loaded the American League is and how many teams are kind of bunched in the middle there, the Angels aren't out of it. And this is a big weekend for them as well as the Rays. No, it's a beautiful beginning of the second half if you're an American League baseball fan. I mean, yeah, the White Sox seem to be pretty much – uh, kind of fading and maybe the Tigers, you know, 
are facing the prospect of maybe selling a few pieces and the A's may be in the process of welcoming a few of their young prospects at the, at the expense of some of their uh, veteran talent. But other than that, right now you're looking at teams, you know, that are all bunched up together and, Basically, a lot of these teams are, you know, between now and July 31st, this 19-day, 18-day period. Um, it's basically how many games we win, what position we put ourselves in, and what decisions do we have to make by then. Then after that, you might see some separation after teams make the decision to unload some players, um, and you'll you'll see you'll see some separation in August, and then we'll get into September, and you and I will talk again and be like, man, this we've whittled it down to these seven teams for these six spots. That's going to be an interesting trade deadline this year. There are a lot of teams that are sitting on the periphery of being in it. And usually when you're in that kind of a position, you're not willing to trade away some of your more major league ready players. So it seems like demand is going to outweigh supply this year. That's not always true, but this year it seems like it's going to be especially true. Maybe not so much in the National League, which is a lot more top heavy than the AL the AL, it seems like, like you mentioned, there are only maybe three teams that you would really want to count out of it. Yeah, and the other, the other variable that might balance the scales at the trade deadline to a little bit more activity is the new CBA and the, the rules on compensation for players at the end of their contract. You know, And uh, since we opened about talking about the Rays, it's very difficult for the Rays to lose Alex Cobb for nothing. So the Rays are going to have a very tough decision to make from a marketing standpoint and from a competition standpoint, say they go in this uh, West coast, what's to say over the next 14 games leading up to the Yankee series before the end of the first half, they play a little bit under 500 and are six out of the division and five out of the wild card. They got a very tough decision to make on one of the more popular pitchers that have, that has pitched for the Rays. But if they don't deal him now, then they're, they're probably not going to have any kind of compensation for him when he walks as a free agent. So the CBA is, and there's, there's more players other than Alex Cobb that are in the same boat in other organizations. And that'll be the big variable that might move some guys. Exactly. And the rebound Alex Cobb's have at after the injury riddled 2016 season has been remarkable as well. That's going to add to his value. If he hits the trade market, they're going to get a lot for him. But it, like you said, it's going to be very difficult for a Rays team that's happy to be in the race. That uh, Unless they really have a rough week or two here, it's going to be tough for them to cut bait with that. And that means they're going to be facing maybe at best getting a compensatory draft pick for Alex Cobb should he leave in the offseason for a team that doesn't have a lot of resources. And we know that sooner or later, the Rays are going to get a TV contract that's going to bring in some more money, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen this off season. Yeah. Plus they're not, they're not going to give a qualifying offer to Alex Cobb at $18 million. So there will be no compensation pick coming back for Alex Cobb. The 18 million is just a little bit too high to put on him. And again, going into that CBA, it's not like the old CBA where if you put the qualifying offer and you get a first round pick, if he signs anywhere, there are certain stipulations to contract dollar amount, 50 million or more gets you this and, and stuff like that. So it's a uh, it's a different reality that teams are going to have to struggle with. Uh, if you're a Rays fan and you want Alex Cobb to be here through the end of the year, you just what you want is to have solid play between now and the 31st. And also looking forward with the Rays, I think 
one of the biggest surprises this season in just six starts, mind you, is Jacob Faria has been fantastic at just 23. He has 37 strikeouts and 38.1 innings. He's got a 4-0 record for whatever that's still worth these days, and the ERA is pretty low at 2.1. So that's a great sign for a team that in recent years, a lot of talk around the Rays is they had that prospect pipeline under Andrew Friedman, and it seemed to have dried up in recent years. It's good to see somebody in their early 20s doing well for the Rays again. Yeah, the prospect pipeline kind of dried up. I mean, you take a look, you know, Kevin Kiermeyer came up into center field. Alex Calame went from a starting pitcher down into the bullpen, you know, and uh, uh, other than that, they really haven't had too much uh, come up and help them from the farm system. Guys like Richie Schaefer and Taylor Motter and uh, Mikey Matuk, uh, they all got their opportunity. They weren't able to hold on to the opportunity. And got to remember, those were all Andrew Friedman draft picks. So, you know, what we're seeing now, you know, we're seeing a, a team that took their time with Jacob Freya. They altered his uh, his delivery a little bit to give him a little bit more of a, I call it, 1980s leg kick, which is something we don't see, see a whole heck of a lot in baseball anymore. Um, but, no, I've followed Freya's career in the minor leagues. And if you were looking at box scores throughout his career, you'd see that he had or his line score in the, uh, you know, in one of his stat pages. You'd see he'd have trouble with the walk. And the, and the fun or the fascinating thing about watching Jacob Freya when he struggled with his command is he was still throwing a competitive pitch through most of the strike zone. It would just tail out at the last second. And for the most part, you know, some starts he just lost it, but for the most part, he was around the strike zone. And you're seeing that at the big leagues as well. He's around the strike zone. He's got defense playing behind him, And, uh, so far so good. And we got to hope that tonight in his hometown that he, uh, he's not too amped up and he, you know, delivers another quality start for the team. And of course, as we mentioned before, their hitting really is the headliner. They are hitting for a lot of power, the Rays. Logan Morrison leading the team with 24 home runs. But really, although he's had a season like this before, I think the revelation has been Corey Dickerson, who seems to be, if anything, improving off his career year from 2014. Right now, he's hitting 312, which ties. Uh, which would tie his highest total for any season. And he's got 17 home runs. His career high is 24. And that was in Coors Field. So he's really found a mm-hmm. swing this year. Yeah, he lost a lot of weight in the offseason. Now, uh, when he came over from when he came over from Colorado, there was a lot of worry that he was a Colorado uh, Coors Field generated hitter. I, I've never bought into the home and road splits for a player uh, from Colorado. I just, you know, I, I'm very leery of putting that on to somebody. But, you know, he was known as a hitter that the one thing that he did do was spray the ball all over the field. And we're seeing that now. Now, when he came over from Colorado, nobody knew this, but he had a plantar fasciitis issue in the offseason and was unable to work out. So he came over to the Rays a little bit heavier, about 20 to 25 pounds heavier than what he would like. And it showed in maybe a little bit of bat speed and a little bit of defensive incapability. So over the offseason, with the, the foot's fully healed, He's used to being a DH and an outfielder, you know, splitting his time between the two. He dedicated himself to getting that weight back down under control, came in with that bat speed that's been generating again. Sometimes he looks like a natural power hitter, yanks a ball, you know, into left field or into right field for the power. And then sometimes he goes into 
what I call the Ichiro mode, where he just kind of pushes the ball, you know, to, to left field and slaps at it as he's heading out of the batter's box. It's really fascinating to see. It's somewhere between Ichiro and Vlad Guerrero and your standard prototypical left-handed hitter. So in one plate appearance, you might see all three guys. We'll be right back talking Rays with Steve Kinsella in a moment, but first, a quick preview for Ground Under Repair. This week, I spoke with Greg Nathan of the National Golf Foundation, and their market research says golf is in the midst of a boom that nobody's talking about. We had 2.5 million people take up golf for the first time in 2016. That's the all-time measured high. It's a, it's a number that's bigger than it was uh, at the height of Tiger mania. A demographic deep dive with the NGF. This week with me, your host Tim Williams on Ground Under Repair. With the Rays, it's hard not to talk about how they've been building as an organization over these now. This is their 20th season. And of course, when we talk about that, the talk usually turns to the future and how they can build more of their fan base and take over more of the Tampa Bay area. And that's what brings me back to the standings. You know, they've had plenty of fights with the Boston Red Sox over the years, the Tampa Bay Rays. And I think that's been good for them that they've been able to build a rival to a degree for their fans. But they've never really had a good chance to have a small a local rivalry of sorts with the New York Yankees. I think this year is going to be that chance as they're tied in the standings. And there are, of course, Yankee fans all over Tampa. seems like that's been waiting to happen for years. And this is the first real opportunity that since the Rays have gotten good 10 years ago, that they've really had to take on the Yankees like this. Well, from somebody who sits in the press box the last five years, let me tell you that the uh, competition and the rivalry between the Yankees and the Rays and their fans is off the charts. There, There is no waiting for it to cultivate or maybe it'll happen or maybe it won't. Uh, it's there. It goes all the way back to spring training of uh, 2008 when uh, Shelly Duncan came in high on uh, Aki uh, out there at second base and Johnny Gomes came in and they had a spring training rumble. Um, that's kind of the the genesis of uh, the the the, uh, the Rays telling the New York boys, "We are not your little puppets. We are not your little uh, uh, toys for you to you know play with here." And that energy is in the is in the stadium every time those Yankees are in town. Uh, the the Red Sox is very similar. Now the Red Sox had David Ortiz and David Price plunked him, and they've had a couple other uh, they've co- had a couple other skirmishes through the years with the uh, I, with the Red Sox. And I, I understand I can, there's a difference between... I, hmm? I, I just said I can think all the way back to 2001 with Pedro Martinez and Gerald Williams. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. If you want to judge a rivalry by the amount of fights the teams have on the field, then yeah, the Red Sox and Rays have a rivalry. If you want to judge it on intensity of competition since 2008 when the Rays became a player in the American League East, uh, there's not much difference between the two teams when they come into town. You know, I think the Rays were uh, extremely happy to sweep away the Yankees last year as the Yankees moved Carlos Beltran and, Beltran and Andrew Miller and a few other guys right during the series. The, Yan- the, the Rays felt, you know, in a year of losing 94 games, uh, right right or wrong, the fans were celebrating uh, 
the the genesis of what they did in that series. I don't agree with it, you know, but it, it is it is quite a rivalry. It's it's a lot of fun to go to a, a Red Sox or go to a Yankees game um, at Tropicana Field. It's also a lot of fun to keep the Yankee fans quiet or the Red Sox fans quiet because all it takes is two base runners and the the here we go Yankees or let's go Red Sox chant uh, does get rather loud. Absolutely, and it it seems like that was something that the Rays and their fans really needed because when you start up a franchise in Florida, you have to contend with some existing fan bases. People can grow up in Tampa and they grew up with the Yankees showing up for a month, a year, every year in spring training, they Mm -hmm. still do. And St. Pete has the same thing. They had a Cardinals outpost for a long time. The Phillies are right there in Clearwater. So being able to take on these bigger markets, not just because they're, so overwhelming on the national outlets, but also because they're right in your own backyard has got to be really satisfying for the fans. And it's given them a whole new attitude, the Rays, that you can see every year when they release the TV ratings for every team and the Rays do better than most people would expect. And those games where people can, the people that can get out to the trop really do, they, they have bought in on this and it's fun to watch that, that fan base kind of grow in in a way that only a Florida team can because of that spring training background. Yeah, you're. It's a good point there, you know. And uh, you know, if you if you're down here in the Bay Area and you know you listen to sports radio, the local shows, or you watch TV, or you go to events, or you you just go to the mall to do some shopping or whatever, you're going to see a ton of Rays gear, Rays stuff. People, if you're wearing it, they ask you about it. There's just a lot, there's a lot of interest, more than people would ever know in the team. Um, it, and unfortunately, you know, everybody's going to say point to the attendance at Tropicana Field. And, you know, uh, I, I grew up in Cleveland during the old municipal stadium days. So attendance talk for me doesn't really do much. I just say, okay, yeah, whatever, you know. Well, let's talk about the, the product on the field. Well, and usually when you hear people complain about the Rays attendance, they're people that, have never been to or even looked at a map of the Tampa Bay area, because once you've been in that traffic, you no longer Mm. have to wonder what, what exactly is going on or wonder if it's the market itself. When you have a stadium that less than 20% of the effective market can reach in an hour, you're not going to get great (laughs) attendance. And that's the, no, it's it's not. not against the Rays. That's not against, after all, they didn't build that stadium. (laughs) <laughs> that stadium was built <laughs> no. by Harry Ryan in the Chicago White Sox 10 years before the Rays even existed. <laughs> and then maybe even for the San Francisco Giants who had their farewell party at the uh, park and had all their great players come in and they had uniforms and everything uh, as they were moving to Tampa before, uh, or to St. Pete, before they had their 11th hour. Uh, uh, if you ever have an opportunity, any of your listeners, to read Jonah Carey's book, The Extra 2%, uh, he covers the, uh, uh, the the building of Tropicana Field, uh, the teams that used it to try to relocate here to get a sweet stadium deal. Uh, he tells a clever story about the Chicago City Council, as you talked about, Reinsdorf. They had until, uh, by city council rules, they had until the clock strikes 12 to reach a court on financing a new stadium or else the team was going to St. Pete. All the camera crews, a couple from you know National and a couple from Tampa, were outside the uh, uh, courthouse well what the mayor did was he stopped the clock at about five minutes to 12 
they negotiated till 3.30 in the morning and they reached a deal. And of course, since the clock in the room never struck 12, it was considered illegal uh, reaching of <laughs> reaching of the deal. And all you can say is, damn Chicago politics and laugh. But it's a very good book with a lot of uh, a lot of talk about how the Rays went from the Vincent Amoli Rays to Tropicana Field, all that, and then getting to where they got to a couple years ago. Highly recommend the book. It almost seems like that's the story of every professional sports team in Tampa Bay, that it starts off with a weird situation and an owner that people would rather forget. And then someone else came in and everything changed overnight. I think only the Rowdies really can say they didn't have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to Jonah Carey about ownership and Vince Namoli and where he'd rank him and, uh, he still puts uh, the guy I grew up with, uh, Ted Stepien, former owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, he still puts him up there near the top of the worst owners of all time. But Namoli was pretty high on his list. Well, and, of course, there's also Hugh Culverhouse, who owned the Bucks for all those yeah. years. But getting back to happier <laughs> topics with the Rays. Yes, yes. Yeah. Evan Longoria. Only hitting mm-hmm. 259, but he's got 12 homers, 22 doubles. He's been a leader on this team. He's been here to mm-hmm. see that entire team get built kind of around him. That is, he is going to go down as the franchise player for this organization for the foreseeable future, is he not? Like, there's no question oh, yeah. about that, that, that perhaps maybe someone else could take his place. That's, he's the face of this organization. Yeah, a lot of people say that, you know, hey, Kevin Kiermeyer surpassed, you know, and that's possible, you know, in, in today's fandom, when is when, what have you done for me lately as far as, you know, the, the newest, you know, the newest thing is Kevin Kiermeyer, and I understand that, but Evan Longoria is the, the, the rock of the franchise as far as, you know, when you look at the team and you see Longoria, you see what he provides overall in baseball, not just in the, you know, offensive side, but his defense at third base, um, you know, I, I have a feeling uh, that he had a lot to do with the uh, the new breed of player that the Rays are going after, as opposed to what they've had in the last couple of years. Um, I think that, you know, when he, you know, a little bit trickled out about how he was upset with this move or that move, you know, um, I think what he was basically saying is I want baseball players. I think he does have a voice in that. Um, he is kind of like the patriarch of the team. And uh, I think it's going to be that way for a while. Now, he'll, his value will diminish over the years, but his value as far as a leader and the face of the franchise, I don't think is going to change much. And you mentioned Kiermaier. Of course, he is something to watch when he's healthy. What's the latest status on his injury? It looks like he's still going to be out for a little bit of the season. Will he be back by September, or is that still up in the air with a hip injury it can be? Well, he released a video today on the uninterrupted, which is really a great video, you know, basically saying that he's ramping up to sprinting next week. He has not had any pain through the entire process. He goes, not many, uh, uh, not many, uh, 27 or whatever years, old, 27 year olds break their hip and he laughed because when you play as hard as I do, that'll happen. And, but he said that he's doing great. He has, a. Uh, uh, he's running, he's batting, he's doing stuff. He'll, he'll he'll ramp up to sprinting. I think the earliest he can come back is August 9th or 10th. So you figure somewhere around there, maybe a week later, uh, he should be back, uh, barring any kind of discomfort during the uh, uh, rehab. It seems to me that the uh, uh, putting him on the 60-day disabled list may have been a little 
overly cautious on the race part. Um, I know last year when he broke his hand, he healed rather quick. And I know some players heal faster than others. Um, in this case, Kiermaier appears to be kind of a fast healer. So we'll see. The, the I would say around August 15th, August 20th is about when you can expect Kiermaier to, uh, to return to the team. And it's looking like Tim Beckham will probably be back in the lineup by the end of this weekend, correct? Yeah, Beckham, you know, again, it was one of those, let's take advantage of the all-star break. He's been dealing with a bulky ankle for most of the year. Um, You know, it probably limited a little bit of his defensive capability at shortstop earlier, but a little bit less taxing when he plays uh, second base. And uh, so they took advantage again of the all-star break and the series leading up to the all-star break to give him, you know, let's let's get him off his feet for 10 days, um, you know, and bring him back when he's, you know, able to play on a consistent basis and get over this little issue. One last thing on the injury front, and this comes from another team. It looks like Michael Pineda will probably mm. not be pitching again this season for the Yankees. He's going to look for a second opinion, but it's been recommended that he get Tommy John surgery. Now, earlier this year, the same thing happened to David Price. He got a second opinion, recovered, and seems just fine. So it's not impossible that Pineda pitches before the end of the year, but it's looking increasingly unlikely with that tear in the UCL. Wow. And you add to that that Luis Severino, the Yankees' best pitcher this season, is already at his career high in innings. And you've got a raised team that, yet again, and much the way you wouldn't look at at schedules, looking at opponents might be Mm -hmm. a little underhanded as well. But it looks like Mm -hmm. things are setting up a little bit for the Rays and that of the teams in the AL East – they seem to have the most stable pitching rotation. Yeah, first first thing, David Price did not have a UCL injury. You know, his injury was not a ulnar collateral ligament. There was no damage to the ligament, which means rest and rehab could work for him. He went to see Dr. Uh, uh, James Andrews. He also went to see the guy out in California, Andrews' partner. Um, Pineda has a torn UCL. To what degree, we don't know. A better comp, a better comparison would probably be Masahiro Tanaka, who also has a slightly torn UCL. And uh, he's decided that I think he got a plasma injection is going to pitch in through it. On the second opinion, that might be what they decide to do with uh, Pineda. They may say, hey, let's get you a plasma injection. We're going to shut you down for four to five weeks and see if you can't pitch in September. Um, you know, so let's keep an eye on that. But uh, as far as the, the pitching in the American League East, now that Eduardo Rodriguez is getting ready to return uh, to Boston from his, his knee issue, when you've got Price and Sale and Edward, Eduardo Rodriguez and Drew Pomeranz and John, and uh, uh, Rick Porcello, uh, you got a nice little balance out there. Maybe a little lefty, uh, little lefty heavy, but uh, I'm sure the uh, Red Sox are going to start adding on to the. Uh, uh, to that pitching staff, either in the in the bullpen or even maybe even another starter to transfer a guy like Pomeranz even to the pen, but uh, you really got to like Boston's overall team: defense, speed, power, a little bit of power. They don't hit a lot of home runs. I shouldn't you really say power. So we'll stick to the speed, offense, and uh, a very good uh, starting pitching, a very good bullpen capped off by a K- Craig Kimbrell in the back end. You look at the rest of the rotations in that division and. A healthy uh, uh, Sanchez, Aaron Sanchez down in Toronto could help out a lot with J.A. Happ and turn Liriano around and, 
and all that. But you're right. I like the Rays rotation very much. Um, I do like, uh, you know, the Rays bullpen now that Boxberger is back has really helped. And hopefully Xavier Sedania will come back in mid, mid uh, August as well. But back to your point, I do think that when you stack up the pitching staffs in the American League East, it would be Boston, then the Rays, then the Yankees, Blue Jays real close to each other. And I don't think we, 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 I don't think we need to talk about Baltimore's pitching staff outside of Dylan Bundy. Uh, that's a train wreck. I think Orioles fans would appreciate that we don't talk about the Orioles pitching staff right now. <laughs> and and as far as Boston goes, it's going to ride a lot on Eduardo Rodriguez and how he comes back from that injury. Because if he comes back just fine from that injury, I don't see them making a deal. They've already depleted their farm system quite a bit over the last two years. But if Rodriguez comes back and he's shaky, then they're looking at a fifth starter who's, you know, a question mark, as well as Rick Porcello having taken a step back from that Cy Young season. But you're right, on paper, they certainly look like the favorites, and they have the three-and-a-half game lead. So they're in great position, but so too are the Rays and Yankees. It's a little early for the wild card standings, but they are both a game up on the competition in that regard. Now, it's a, it's a tight competition. But they're they're in position, and certainly the Rays have done about everything anyone could ask them to do thus far. And Steve Kinsella, Rays reporter for Sports Talk Florida, thanks for coming on the pickup game this week. Hey, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. That's the pickup game for this week. Next week, I'm going to be talking golf, as it's time for the Open Championship, and golf's incredible young field is still not getting the credit it deserves. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio, and if you like this show, check out the other offerings on the Podcast Lab Network. The Sunshine Boys talk Florida sports, Ground Under Repair goes behind the scenes of golf itself, and Puck University is our college hockey podcast. This has been the Pickup Game. I'm your host, Tim Williams. Thanks again to Steve Kinsella for coming on. Enjoy the second half, everybody.